Hi, and welcome back to Generation Collaboration. I'm Brayden, and it's only me here today. Unfortunately, Sanakshi is out sick, but don't worry, we have some amazing guests who are here to break up the monotony of me talking. Before we begin, please make sure to like, subscribe, and follow the show wherever you do your listening. Today we are joined by Ames Stenson and Leah Rolfs to talk to us about restorative justice. Thank you both for being here. Um, quick bios. Ames joins us today from the city of Inglewood, where they are the program manager for the Municipal Courts Restorative Justice Program. They also serve across Colorado in multiple restorative justice programs. We're also joined by our youth guest, Leah, from Fort Collins. Leah is an active member in the restorative justice community, where she's going on her seventh year of being a community representative, victim representative, and peer representative with the restorative justice program in Fort Collins. So Ames and Leah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, let's get started. Um, Let's start with Leah. Can you talk to us a little bit about what is restorative justice? Ooh, yes. Um, What my experiences in restorative justice is when someone commits a crime, uh, instead of going to the court and going through the court system, they get referred to the restorative justice system. And um, this system is basically a group of volunteers. We have a facilitator. We usually have a peer representative, a community representative. And sometimes if the victim um, of the crime doesn't want to participate, we'll have a victim representative. It's uh, pretty much kind of a long process of um, the facilitator doing a lot of interviewing and making sure that They um, get all the sides of the story, and then we all meet in a circle. We go around, and everyone tells their story. Um, So everyone that was impacted by the crime and involved with the crime, so whether that's the victims and then the victims' parents, the offenders, the offenders' parents, or, you know, sometimes there aren't parents involved. So everyone kind of goes around and tells the story of the crime from their perspective, um, what they were feeling during it, what their motivation was, or just kind of like their story, their truth. And then we have uh, the representatives and the volunteers talk about, well, your crime impacted the community this way. And the volunteers don't know these people and um, they're not related to the crime in any way. They're just there to um, kind of like support the community or the peer community or the victim. So for example, if it's someone who is shoplifting, we'll have someone that is maybe a store owner, but not the store owner of the store that they shoplifted from, um, just kind of to commu- like to represent that community. And then, uh, you know, this this circle process usually takes anywhere from one to like five hours. It can it can be a lot. And so then at the end of that, all of the people in the circle uh, get together to create a contract for the offenders. And this contract is um, made up of community service that the offender can do. And then um, they go through a whole contract period where they um, have a certain amount of time to complete their contract of a certain amount of um, hours. Then their uh, record is cleared. And so, yeah, that's kind of the process. That was a lot. (laughs) 
<laughs> but so I hope um I hope that was kind of all that you were looking for. <laughs> that is great. Thank you. And it sounds like this process is quite I would say revolutionary almost. Um Ames, I'm curious to hear what is the history behind restorative justice? Yeah, thanks Braden. Thanks Leah for your amazing kind of outline of the process that many restorative justice practices take. Um, so the history of restorative justice practices, it's actually considered the oldest way of doing justice in our, in our history of the, of the world, right? So it's about how do we engage as human beings from a place of when we harm each other, we are not whole, we're not, we're not fully healed. So restorative practices come from indigenous community roots, uh, come from the ideas that we cannot be separated. We're actually interrelated at a very core level. And so instead of pushing people out when we cause harm and pushing them away, we're actually reintegrating folks back into how do we become whole again by holding people accountable, helping to heal harm and restoring relationships. And so that's, that is one way I would say that one very common way that restorative justice is utilized, um, the, the way that Leah just described kind of the process. But again, the roots are incredibly old. Uh, they're newer as far as how we utilize them here in this country, maybe the last 40, almost 50 years, uh, but thousands of years old as far as the concepts of interrelatedness. That's amazing that a, a process so old still is being redone and revamped today and being used today. Um, I'm kind of curious why why do you think it hasn't been so prevalent in our community since it is so old? Yeah, I mean, I can start, and Leah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too. Um, you know, to say that the way that we currently do restorative justice is exactly how folks uh, in indigenous communities did restorative justice is actually not accurate, right? It's, we are engaging in similar values and concepts. And because of that, these concepts are a complete culture shift in the way that we engage with one another, right? So we're in a culture that really emphasizes individualism and capitalism and getting ahead and working hard and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. And this concept at the deepest core is about we are all 100% worthy and loved and connected, and so in order to, when harm occurs, because we're human and harm occurs, we actually have to come back to that deepest core and value of connectedness and love. And that when one person is unhealed, whether they're the person who causes harm or the person that, in, um, that experiences harm, that impacts our whole community. So I think that's in part, probably a huge part to some extent, um, the reason why, you know, even though folks say, oh, this is a new concept within the United States or the world, um, it's it's only, I think it challenges our worldview, right? And so that's maybe part of the reason why it isn't quite as known or accepted um, as far as how we're engaging in these practices today. Leah, what would you say? Yeah, I loved what you said, Ames. I think that's wonderful. And, you know, I think... Our culture focuses so much on you commit a crime and you pay for it. And it's very much like when you when you make a mistake, you like you need to pay for it in some way. And 
Restorative justice is a lot about accountability and being responsible for your actions. But what I think is so important about restorative justice and why it's so incredible is because we make a point to look at the crime and look at the person that committed the crime as two separate things. And even at the beginning of every circle, we say the crime was bad, the person is not. And I think that's kind of like, that's kind of like a strange idea to our American culture. That's like, if you commit a crime, you're a bad person, you know, when it's like, that's, you know, we're, we're all human. We all make mistakes. Like Ames said, because we're human, there's going to be a harm that's going to happen at some point. Like we've, we've all, do, we've all done mistakes. We've all harmed someone at some point in our life. And so I think it's just, um, it's almost like a cultural shift mm-hmm. to be able to practice restorative justice because it's, it's kind of rewiring the way that we think about offenders and also the way that we rewire uh, the way that we think about victims because victims are so much more than this one thing that happened to them. And so many circles that I've been in, um, at the end, the offender and the victim are hugging or, you know, they're getting together to um, do something for the offender's contract. And that just doesn't happen in a courtroom. Restorative justice programs are almost uniting the victim and the offender and trying to repair that harm, repair the harm to the community, repair the harm to the victim, and even repair the harm to the offender. Um, And we've talked about in the past, like, hurt people hurt people. Mm -hmm. So really digging into why did that person victimize someone else or another organization or group, um, whatever it is. And it's amazing that we have programs like that. So, Leah, you're very involved in the criminal side of restorative justice. Where else do you think it could be implemented? Well, honestly, restorative justice can be implemented anywhere. There doesn't have to be crime involved, but um, wherever there's conflict, there is resolution. And so restorative justice can be implemented within schools within families, within one-on-one relationships. Um, even like like you just said, Brayden, like, you know, having conflict within yourself and being able to um, resolve that. And one of the ways that this is done that isn't really connected to um, the criminal justice part of it is something called peace circles. And peace circles um, are something that you kind of get in a group of people. It can be anywhere from like two to however many people you want to um, have. And uh, you generally have a talking piece, which indicates whose turn it is to talk and no one else talks unless you have the talking piece. And there's a prompt that is kind of just like, tell your truth. Uh, There might be like brief limitations to the subject or kind of the direction that people want to go with the subject. And then people just speak their truth and they talk about their feelings and it's kind of just like a soundboard and no one's kind of there to give advice or to respond. It's just saying it in a group of people and um, that can be super, super powerful. And honestly, I think just active listening can be found so many places. Listening with like an open heart and an open mind, that can be implemented in so many different ways. It can kind of be anywhere. I love that. That is amazing. And I really like how listening 
is kind of core to what restorative justice is. And especially in my generation, we seem to have the answers to everything. And we kind of want to give advice to everyone. And I think if we can sit down and listen a little bit more, not only will it empower us more, but I think it'll make our proposed solutions a lot better. And it'll give adults the ability to speak into youth. So Ames, I'm curious Mm -hmm. to hear, how can we implement restorative justice in a community that's more punishment-based and punishment-focused. I mean, even at schools, you Mm -hmm. hear about the school-to-prison pipeline and suspensions, expulsions at home. It's stern lectures and talking tos. And how do we implement restorative justice in our American culture today? Yeah, that's such a great question. And and I think you speak to the need for the culture shift, right? And I think that goes back to what Leah and I were both saying earlier is that it's a really different way of looking at the world and engaging with people. And so one of the um, kind of values and, and set of values, I should say, of restorative justice, especially here in Colorado, which was created by one of our kind of grandmothers of restorative justice in Colorado, Beverly, Dr. Beverly Title. She came up with the five R's of restorative justice. So relationship, respect, responsibility, repair and reintegration. And so oftentimes I like to think about that restorative justice practices can be any practice that supports at least one of those R's, right? And so listening is a part of basically all of those R's, right? And so when we can be practicing the five R's of restorative justice, we are then creating individual and community resiliency around how we're engaging with one another. So if we take those concepts and those values and we intimate, uh, If we take those concepts and values and integrate them into systems such as a school, such as a family system, that all those folks, all folks have known is this one way of doing things, um, one thing to do is just to start to build relationship with people, be curious, ask questions. How does that working? You know, what, what are the, what's the outcomes of just doing suspension and expulsion? What are the opportunities that we have to learn here? So just some basic questions and inquiry around what are we doing currently and how is it working? And ultimately, are folks open to something that's a new or not new, as we know, a different way of engaging with each other? Um, And so, you know, there are organizations across the state that are engaging in restorative practices in schools, um, in organizations, doing trainings so that people who are wanting and commit to engaging in these practices in these different settings can get the basic foundational values and concepts that will allow them to use these different practices to engage in restorative practices in their own personal conversations. It's not just a, a skill that teachers can use with students. It's actually, let's have students use it together. Let's have administration and staff use it together. Let's have the parents and students use it together with staff, right? So it's really about How do we integrate at every single level, wherever there are relationships, we can use these five R's to help craft that. That's very interesting and very different compared to our culture today. Our culture today is very punitive, punishment-based, punishment-focused. Do you think that punitive practices have a place in society? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Ooh, you're putting me on the spot, Braden. No, I appreciate it. Um, you know, it's it's tough, right? Because I want to say, I want to help envision a world where we don't need, need punitive practices. And to be honest, it's hard for me to to see a world where 
at some point we wouldn't have some kind of punitive measures. And 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 I I it's hard to say that honestly, but it feels true to me at this moment. And even saying that, that's why I think it's so important that while our systems that are function, you know, functioning systems that we have in the criminal legal system, um, I think we need to work from the inside out, even in those systems to help create things in a more restorative way as much as possible. And so people being held accountable, I mean, maybe that's part of it too, right? Is like, what do we mean by punitive? Because I believe in accountability, right? Restorative justice is about high accountability and high support. And so ultimately, I actually think we could create a criminal legal system that emphasizes high accountability and high support, where we actually wouldn't need punitive measures. So I guess it depends on the definition that you're saying of punitive. Do I think that, you know, in my lifetime, we're going to have... a system where we don't have to to lock people up for at some extended period of time or some period of time while they're de-escalating and regrouping and getting support and resources that they that they need. I don't know if that's going to happen in my lifetime. I'd love for it to, but as far as I do believe that it's very possible for us to see systems that are built around accountability and healing at the same time. But there's a lot of work that's got to be done to get there. That's awesome. Um, Leah, could you talk a little bit more about how do we find that balance between um, what Ames was just talking about with accountability and restorative practices and implementing that into our current, especially legal systems? Totally, yeah. And I have only ever worked with very low-profile crimes. And so, you know, it does raise a question when there are those high-profile crimes I I definitely think that restorative justice, like I said, can be implemented anywhere in any kind of crime. And I agree with Ames. I think it would be it would be incredible if we could just have a legal system that was based in restorative justice. Um, And so finding, you know, the balance, the accountability part is so it's emphasized so much in restorative justice. You know, we want people to be able to own up to what they did. And then that's when we can start the healing process because nothing can happen unless you can say, yes, I hurt somebody. And then I think that's when we can start the path to healing and the path to peace between the two parties. I love this idea of accountability. And when we talk about accountability, we talk a lot about about the offender um, and the accountability they take. How does this help the victim. Ames, I'm curious to hear, how does restorative justice and having people take accountability, how does this help a victim heal from the harm? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's, you know, over the last 40 plus years of integrating restorative justice into our current systems, um, we have gathered some data. And one of the things that you hear oftentimes from victims of crime in general is one of the common themes, right, is that I don't want this person to hurt another person in this way. And so what we hear through feedback in utilizing restorative justice programs, specifically from victims or harmed parties, is I got to say what I needed specifically to this person or through a surrogate statement, as Leah had mentioned earlier, if a harmed party doesn't want to participate, it's of course voluntary. And so they can submit a statement oftentimes in these specific kinds of programs that we're talking about. Um, And so they they can have their voice directly heard 
by the the person who's created harm um, in a way that then names here's specifically how I've been harmed and here's what I need so that the harm doesn't happen again. And, you know, I take that as harm doesn't happen again to me or to someone else. And so they have a direct voice into the request of, you know, here's the, here's the high accountability and um, here's what I need as a human being to, to start repairing and to start healing from that harm. And so that's a very different engagement process than our current criminal legal system. And that alone, giving people that direct engagement and opportunity to start to create their own new narrative of what happened. And here's, you know, once someone, once a responsible party has said, well, I did this because of A, B, and C, then the harmed party can ask, oh, they can ask clarifying questions or maybe they'll learn they didn't specifically target me. I just happened to have my bag available for them to take something from, right? So they get to get details and information that allow them to get clarity on what actually happened, which then allows harmed parties to to kind of create closure in their brains around what occurred so that, you know, any kind of trauma that folks experience, getting clarity and information is a huge part of being able to start that healing process. Um, so I think those, you know, there's several different pieces, but being able to have direct voice into what occurred, how I've been harmed, what I need to repair that harm, and then getting that clarity information that uh, then allows harmed parties to start to create a new narrative and new meaning of what occurred. Those two things are incredibly powerful. And you can see that through data, you can see that through various different genres of professions as far as you know, therapy and, and psychology, all of those things around narrative therapy and why it's so important. It's really actually those concepts are rooted in this idea of restorative practices and how we invite harmed parties to participate. I I really yeah. like Oh, the, I had, oh, I'm oh, sorry. No, I was go just going to, if that's okay, I just um, wanted to kind of throw another word in there off of what Ames said was validation. Yeah. You know, when someone does something that harms you and you can have a million people tell you, yeah, that is totally fair. But having that person that actually did harm you say, I hurt you and mm -hmm. I'm recognizing that what I did wasn't okay. That's like so big to the victim. And seeing that that person is just, you know, genuinely sorry. And then also seeing that 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 person, seeing them more as a human being. That was just something I wanted to add on to what Ames said was just that word of validation. And I've just watched so many victims, even their body language, once the offender like says, like, I, I hurt this person. It's just so healing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, thank you. Sorry, I just wanted to jump in there. <laughs> you are all good. And I love that idea of healing. Mm -hmm. um, not our criminal system today is not healing focused. It's sweet people under the rug, put them in prison, hope society forgets about them. And then when they get let out, they're more likely to reoffend. And mm -hmm. then they just, it's this cycle. So going off of that, does restorative justice actually work? Do we have data that proves that recidivism is lower, that people reoffending is lower, that victims feel more closure? Is there data out there that people can access to see that restorative justice actually works? Yeah. Leah, do you want to speak to that first or? Sure. I mean, I actually, I mean, I got these statistics from Ames actually, but um, 
within a year after completing their contract and completing their circle and completing their restorative justice experience, the percentage that they will reoffend within that year um, is 8% of the people that participate. It's it's like less, less than 10%. It's, um, and the um, percentage of people who complete restorative justice is 90%. And the satisfaction rate is 95%. So yeah. Yeah, thanks, Leah. And and so th- those statistics are taken from a 2019 state of the state report of restorative justice in Colorado. So those are actually statewide numbers. Um, but you will see if you do any kind of research around restorative justice across our country and actually globally, around 10% tends to be the recidivism rate, so the reoffense rate, um, once someone has engaged in restorative justice process through a criminal legal system or a community process that engages or partners with a criminal legal program. Um, And so, again, not that we can say it's apples to apples to the criminal legal system, right? Um, Generally, we are taking lower level crimes, as Leah has uh, talked about as well, which is what the Inglewood program does as well. Um, However, again, it's helping to kind of plant different seeds of here's how we respond to conflict. And so I do want to um, invite folks to check out uh, the Restorative um, restorative Justice Council, uh, it's RJ Colorado, um, on the website to look for more data as far as here in Colorado specifically, as well as some of the... Um, reports and research that have been um, funded through RJ Colorado and uh, specifically within juvenile diversion. But it's also important to name that these these programs are incredibly successful for adults as well. So there's lots of data out there. And I know that you're going to share more resources at the end here of where people can find that. But there's, there's lots of information to say this works and here's how it works. Obviously, there's nuances depending on where restorative justice practices are being utilized, whether it's in schools or in a criminal legal system or in organizations or families, but also, you know, there's a lot of data to show it actually can help reduce numbers of suspensions and expulsions as well. Um, so you definitely check out more information if, if you're interested. That's amazing. And that 8% number, Leah, that you shared earlier was really, um, really stood out to me, especially because in Colorado, as of 2022, our recidivism rate is 50%. 50% of the people who go to prison, get released, reoffend. And get mm-hmm. reconvicted. And according to the National Institute of Justice, 44% return to prison within that first year of being released, mm-hmm. which is crazy. And the United States has the highest levels of incarcerated people per capita mm-hmm. in the entire world. Our prison system composes 25% of the world's prisoners. Like, that's crazy. So these statistics about restorative justice actually working is amazing. So I'm curious to hear from Leah, as a young person, how can young people work together with adults to further implement more restorative justice practices? Yes, I love this question. And I think one of the main places that youth and adults are found are within schools. And honestly, like it would be really cool if some classrooms started doing peace circles or if there was a fight or a argument between two students in school that they could have a safe place to go and have a peace circle between the two or just, you know, talk it out 
with a um, safe adult in the room, building relationships between students and teachers and students and adults that are safe, having an adult to go to as a young person to say, hey, I need help, or I feel like I might start fighting this person, or, you know, these rumors are happening or whatever, um, is so important. It can be hard with those generational differences What's so important and what um, restorative justice highlights is finding common ground between people and the fact that we are more alike than we are different. I, I don't think restorative justice we could have the way that it is without collaborating between generations. I really loved your point about common ground. Um, and Ames, I'm curious to hear about, as from an adult perspective, How would you like to see youth and adults working together to further promote restorative justice practices? Yeah, I think the integration of generations across restorative justice is integral for the furthering and developing and future of this practice, these practices, these concepts and values, um, because these concepts are universal language, right, of relationship, respect, responsibility repair, reintegration, they might look a little different, right? There's going to be nuances and differences, but the the concepts of the interconnectedness speaks across generations. And so what I'd like to see, and, and one of the things that we're trying to do with our Inglewood program is invite more young people to participate um, as community members in our circles, in our conferences that we offer by... Um, going and, and asking young folks, hey, are you interested in social justice? Are you interested in criminal legal reform? Um, do you want to learn more about this practice? Do you want to become a facilitator, right? Like really creating opportunities for leadership development, skill development, uh, specific ways for young people to speak into these practices. One of the key concepts of restorative justice is that we share power with. And so how do we create models and structures that invite and share power with people across generations. Um, And that's really important through all the processes that we're developing. Um, One of the things that we're looking at for Inglewood is is really trying to come up with a, a, a youth advisory team or an advisory board so that we're hearing from young people of here's how even the direction of the program can grow, not just do you want to be a volunteer here or there in a process, which is amazing in and of itself. It's that and do you want to be a part of growing this this uh, you know this development that's happening here in Inglewood, but really is growing into Sheridan and Inglewood and the Arapahoe County area? What are the opportunities for development there? So I think it's again inviting folks to engage in conversation. What are you interested in? How can restorative justice programs create opportunities for leadership and development for young people so that we can grow together in these concepts? So that as Across generations, we can help change the narrative and change that worldview of how we want to engage in community together. I really like that. And just as we're wrapping up, Leah, what advice would you have to youth who are looking to get involved in restorative justice or kind of on the fence about it? I would say if you are considering doing restorative justice, you will not regret it at all. It offers such an incredible place for you to learn so much more about your community, so much more about other young people. There's something special about being in a room and watching a character arc of 
an offender, go from, you know, I am this horrible person that committed a crime and now I'm sitting in the room of the person that it affected and like all of a sudden they're sitting up straight and they're engaged and they're they're laughing and they're listening and they're um you know even sometimes crying just even the character arcs of the victim and the parents it's like there's something so empowering of being in a process where you can watch that and help it and you can contribute to it. It honestly has made me grow so much as a person. I think if you are considering volunteering or going into the field, you should definitely just try it and see what opportunities there are for you. That yeah. was really powerful. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and then Ames what advice would you give to adults who are either involved already in restorative justice or looking to get involved? Yeah, um, I would say that if you want to grow and learn at any level of being human around accountability and care and healing for yourself or for your community or wanting to change your complete worldview and engage in transformative work, at any level, are there opportunities to to learn and grow and participate in restorative justice? Similar to what Leah was saying, I've grown personally so much just from this work. It, it's really become kind of my heart work. And once you experience it at some level, the seeds have been planted. And, and this is true for myself. I think this is true for many practitioners that I've heard and folks who have participated in restorative justice process is that that seed, once you've experienced something like that, your whole system actually can be transformed, right? You can't un unsee that. You can't unexperience that. Our, our, like our internal systems actually begin to heal once we have experienced something that is that open-hearted and authentic and invitational and a sharing power, you know, that concept of sharing power with... Once we've experienced something like that, you can't go back. You can't unlearn that. And so it's actually sowing the seeds of transformation. So I would say that for folks who are wanting to contribute on any level in any way to engage and to ask questions and to join us in the conversations, right, this is actually becoming more of a social movement. It's more of a social movement than a program, right? It's, it's actually about how do we choose to engage with each other as human beings. And so for anyone who's curious about that growth process for themselves and with other people as we are in community, whether we like to be or not, we're interrelated, whether we really know that or not, this is an opportunity to learn more. Thank you so much. And thank you both again. Hey, everybody. This is David, one of the producers of the show. After we recorded this episode, Ames reached out about this question that Braden asked. Do you think that punitive practices have a place in society? They felt as though their original answer wasn't as clear as they would have liked, so we invited Ames to send us a recording adding to their response. I've been thinking a lot about the question you asked me, Brayden, and wanted to just add a few more thoughts so that I can be really clear and in integrity with my words and values. So I believe that we can hold folks accountable for behaviors while still recognizing and acknowledging all of our humanness. Punitive measures use power in ways that dehumanize and overwhelmingly fail. 
So do I believe that we can create a justice system that emphasizes healing and accountability for all in my lifetime? I don't know. I I think we as humans are actually pretty committed, either consciously or unconsciously, to suffering. And at a deeper level, that makes me really, really sad. And it also invites me to look at my own commitments to suffering. However, I do not believe that our current criminal legal system that, as Fanya Davis would say, hurts people who hurt people to teach people that hurting people is wrong, is where we need to focus solely our energy. I think we need to I think we need to change it from the inside out as much as possible. And let's also work to create new systems of justice, accountability, and really ultimately healing and wholeness that rely on the wisdom, experience, and strength of one another and the communities in which we participate. If you are interested in getting involved in restorative justice, I recommend visiting the City of Inglewood's Restorative Justice Program's webpage. And even if you don't live in Inglewood, this is a great resource to learn more about restorative justice. For all the youth out there who are interested in taking action in restorative justice, consider looking into your local teen court. And if you don't have a teen court, it's a great opportunity to help create one. You can find these links and resources on the CYL website at coloradoyoungleaders.org. Thank you again for listening to Generation Collaboration. Please make sure to leave us a rating and subscribe to Generation Collaboration wherever you get your podcast. Today's episode of Generation Collaboration was engineered by Srija Chakroborthy. Generation Collaboration is produced by David Layden and Lauren Steve Pack. Our theme song, Find It, was recorded at Youth on Record by Esme Patterson and members of the Youth on Record community. Generation Collaboration is a co-production of Colorado Young Leaders and Youth on Record. Learn more about Colorado Young Leaders at coloradoyoungleaders.org or on Instagram and TikTok at cooyoungleaders. You can learn more about Youth on Record at youthonrecord.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Youth on Record. Thank you again, and we hope you'll join us next month here on Generation Generation Collaboration.